And welcome to another edition of Never a Dull Movie. Today we're going to be talking about The Trial of the Chicago 7, uh, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin and starring, uh, well, a multitude of people, Brian. I was very impressed by this cast. Very impressed. Yeah, it's a good cast. Very impressed by the cast in that um, there. I don't think there's anybody in this cast, like in the main cast, that you'd call A-list. But uh, just Joseph like a, Gordon-Lovett? You know, he, okay, we'll we'll get into it. We'll talk about Joseph Gordon-Lovett. We'll talk about the whole thing. But um, so this. No, is, I'm just saying, as far as A-list goes, wouldn't he be an A-list guy? I don't know. He's been uh, well. So Joseph Gordon-Lovett had taken a, uh, I think, a three-year hiatus from yep. uh, from acting to uh, raise his, okay. to, to take some time to raise his kids and be with his family. And I think, for, for me at least, out of sight, out of mind, you know, I, I like Joseph Gordon-Levitt a, a lot, but, you know, I hadn't seen him in anything because I'm sure I didn't see the last thing he was in. It had maybe been five years since I'd seen something with Joseph Gordon-Levitt in it. True, true. And Eddie, Ray, Ed, Ed, Eddie Redmayne and Mark Rylance, I mean, Mark Rylance is an Oscar winner, isn't he? Oh, of course, yeah. From um, yeah, Bridge of Spies. From uh, right, yeah. So that that's pretty mainstream, right? Well, I, mean, I don't know if he's an A list, but right, he's, exactly. he's, he's a good actor. Yes, all all good actors, all good actors. Yeah. Um, but uh, so this is a this so, is a Netflix movie. But I don't know if you know this, Fathership. This was not supposed to be a Netflix movie. This is a Netflix movie. I believe that this is a Netflix movie by necessity of the pandemic. Correct. This was supposed to yeah. be theatrically released, and uh, of course yeah. it wasn't. You know, I find it interesting, this story of the Chicago 7, uh, the trial of these seven guys uh, for their alleged uh, you know, participation in these riots in Chicago in, in 1968. I, I'll be honest with you, I, I looked up to see if any other movies had been made, and, and there have been. Uh, like either a couple of movies or a miniseries or something on TV, but there's been stuff done on this subject. And I was wondering, like, why is Aaron Sorkin going here again? Well, you know, I, I, I have done a little bit of research on that. Uh, so this has been in production for where this has been a script for a long time. I think, at, okay. I think the, at the latest, I think seven years ago, uh, Spielberg was circling the project. And for whatever reason, you always hear scheduling. Scheduling really kind of separates people from projects in Hollywood pretty easily. But if you if you think about the timeline seven years ago, let's see, if we're, if we're talking Spielberg for a second, in his like last 20 years, Spielberg goes in specific rhythms. He will do three, he'll do a set of three blockbuster style films. And then I'll do a set of three quieter, you know, the, the, the two, the two ends of Spielberg spectrum, the grand blockbuster, you know, maestro, and then these very intimate, the not, not without big scope, but just smaller, small. So, so for example, sure. At the time when he would have been looking to do this script, he was in a stretch of doing Lincoln, Bridge of Spies. And the post, so it makes sense. Right. It makes sense that Spielberg would be in. I mean, you take a, you take a look at the post. Um, I think that if Spielberg were to have to have done *Trial of Chicago 7 and didn't do the post, they're in the same 
time period. They're in the same. Yeah. Um, so so why now? I think that Aaron Sorkin really wants. His, I mean, he wants his projects made. So and I also think he wants to become a better director, which I think he needs to become a better director if he's going to keep directing. But we can get into that uh, later. Father Chip, um, because you're more familiar with this, because I believe no, no, I know you were alive during this trial. Were you old enough to be? <laughs> no, you weren't old I enough. Was to not be, old enough to be paying attention. No, 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 okay. no. I was born in 1968, so the trial took place in what seventy? So you would have been seventy years. Yeah, I think it was two years old or seventy. I mean, I was shocked how long the trial how long the trial took in the movie. So you would have been two, two or three in that age. Two ish, yeah, two or three, yeah. Okay, so but, so it uh, wasn't on my radar. It wasn't on your watch. But, no, Sesame Street was more on my radar, I Fair think, enough. at that point in my yeah. life. Uh, well, why don't you uh, do us a favor? Why don't you do the listeners a favor and, and give us uh, a Cliff Notes version of the story of the trial of Chicago 7? Well, all right, I'll do my best. It's a, it's a, it's a, long, it's a long movie. Um, it's too, you know, it's not too long, hours. long, but there's a lot of stuff going on. Ten full minutes of credits. What would you say? Ten full minutes of credits. The run. Time, yeah. The yeah. runtime at two ten. Yeah. The runtime at two ten is is padded by ten minutes of credits. There you go. And so, back in nineteen sixty eight, before the Democratic Convention, uh, these disparate groups, though loosely connected through their mission, they were different groups that were looking to go and protest at the uh, Democratic Convention in Chicago. So they all go and there's trouble at this at this at this convention outside the convention hall. Um, and the Chicago police are called in and, you know, uh, something happens. I'm not even exactly sure exactly what happened, um, but a riot ensued. And uh, the president at the time was Lyndon, May- Lyndon B. Johnson. His Justice Department found no reason to blame that these groups, that these groups were basically, they were there, yeah, but they, it wasn't their intent they deemed, to go there they and start it, a riot. They deemed it unindictable. Right. So then the presidency changes and it becomes uh, the Nixon presidency. And for some reason that I, I'm still not clear about, the attorney general uh, kind of had, you know, a bug somewhere in his body uh, that he he wanted to get somebody for this. And so he decided to go after these different groups that had pretty influential leaders uh, that were in there. They were all against the Vietnam War. Right. And basically, that's what they were protesting. Yes. So they uh, they went after these guys. They went after uh, well, it, there ended up being actually eight, but as you see in the movie, if you watch the movie, it ends up being seven. So you know you had Tom Hayden, you had uh, Rennie Davis, Abby Hoffman. Everybody knows who Abby Hoffman is. Jerry Rubin, David Dellinger, uh, and the two other and guys. Bobby Seale. And then, and then the two other guys. And then the two, and these two other guys who don't really matter. They don't factor in. Um, they, they got a couple good zingers. They really, in, in the, yeah, they did. That's what they're good for in this movie. That's about it. Yeah. I think that was, uh, was that Leonard? No, Leonard Wineglass was one of the lawyers. He was one of the lawyers. 
Um, yeah, but it was interesting. It was an interesting. Um, it was an interesting setup. You know, I, I was interested by the the history of it all. Um, you are because, you as are, you say, you are a student of history, as am I. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I I read a lot about. There's a couple specific instances in this because I've read a lot about John F. Kennedy. I've read a lot about Bobby Kennedy, and I've read a lot about Nixon and seen movies about them. And the things right. that, and the things that were revealed in this movie, as far because I'd heard of the the Chicago Seven. And yes. I knew that they were put on trial for riots in riots about around the Democratic Convention, but I never know. I never knew why um, they would have been protesting the Democratic Convention, and it was very interesting where they talked about, you know, because Bobby Kennedy was assassinated what two months before. I mean, that was still very fresh, right. and then Martin Luther King was assassinated five months before Bobby Kennedy. I mean, right. there were there was a lot of. Um, I mean, of course, of course I didn't live it, but I can only imagine the amount of anger and fear and just tension just in the air amongst people after these huge things. Because you got to think that if, if, if Bobby Kennedy had lived, he would have been the nominee. And he was an outspoken. Oh, yeah, definitely. He was an outspoken critic against Vietnam. So I was surprised. He was very much against it. So I was surprised to 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 learn, because I didn't know, that one of the main reasons to – to boycott, or not boycott, but to protest the convention was because Hubert Humphrey was a uh, 180 degree swing from Bobby Kennedy on his thoughts on Vietnam. So um, I, I right. found that I found that to be a very interesting reason to protest. Like it's not when they weren't we're not protesting just the war or just the system, but we're protesting this party who's going from one extreme to the other because of a murder. I mean, that's not right. explicitly stated, but that, but it's in the subtext. And then the other thing is... Oh, absolutely. And then the other thing is, having read about Nixon, and I don't know if... I, I assume that he, start, he started his presidency this way. I assume he had lived under this since um, he was in, in uh, Congress and as vice president under Eisenhower. But um, the subtext about that, too, was paranoid about communists. Oh yeah, paranoid and and you know whether these guys I'm sure I'm sure certain certain members of the Chicago Seven or the Chicago Eight before uh, one was dismissed might have identified right. themselves as communists, but a lot of them like David Dellinger, clearly not communist, clearly a patriot. Like this was a very anti-war thing, and um, but it was it was interesting to see how those really high up government level events, presidential level events. Mm -hmm. Like these are some of the real world consequences. I don't think we always see that. No, you're right. And I think we're, I think we're seeing it in our own lifetime, but you know, uh, now, but um, you know, I think it's interesting when it, when you can look back on history and see how it played out, you know, I think, you know, some of those guys were, real radicals right sure. abby hoffman was a real radical yeah um but tom hayden ended up being pretty much a mainstream politician yeah um you know he was a state rep and then a state senator in california yeah i mean I he mean, never he, he never, never had high office but he 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 was a legislator for a long time and uh he's probably more famous though for uh being married to jane fonda you know? Yeah, I did a little bit of Wikipediaing after I watched yeah. the movie and found that out. I found that to be interesting. Yeah, um, so he was he was pretty famous for that. Um, 
and his second wife, uh, third wife rather, was a uh, an actress as well, um, uh, Barbara Williams. But that's neither here nor there. But they were. This was at the beginning of their sort of the beginning of their fame. Their uh, you know their this is when they really became household names. They were all you know, was, they were all in their late twenties, early thirties, right? Um, and so. To, let's get into the movie a little bit. First thing, I, I wrote down some notes. I watched, you know, I watched it a second time. I watched it last night. Okay. Um, because, you know, it's one of these movies. This happens um, from time to time. Something will really stick with you. So I watched it maybe a week ago, and we talked about doing it on the show, and I decided I wanted to be fresh for the podcast. So I watched it last night, and I wrote, down, I wrote down some things. The first thing that hit me was, as far as casting goes, I don't know if you've ever watched The Wire, the HBO series ha- The Wire. You know, I haven't. Everybody tells me I should, but I haven't. It's it's. If we haven't talked about the wire on this podcast, I'd be surprised. But I will say I've heard it said, and I agree with it that it is the closest that television has ever come to being literature. Uh, there you go. It's it's excellent. But anyways, uh, Mitchell, Attorney General Mitchell, was played by yeah. was played by a prominent character actor from The Wire. Uh, he plays uh, Rawls, one of the higher ups in the Baltimore Police Department, and um, brilliant casting. Like, you know, not not to not to typecast that particular actor, but you know, he slid. He, he, he knowing him from The Wire, he slid right in as a as a viewer. I was signaled immediately how to feel about this guy because of, because of knowing him yeah. from The Wire. I thought that was brilliant casting. I, I, the, the actual name of the uh, actor escapes me, but uh, that was my first thought. Yeah. So, um, okay. And then you had mentioned Mark, uh, you had mentioned Mark Rylance and yep. You know, I hope that Mark Rylance, he's an older actor to become prominent, but I hope that he has a long career where we, where we really get to see him. I don't know how old right. he is right now. Yeah. Uh, well, that actor, by the way, that you were talking about, his name is John Doman. Okay. Yep. D-O-M-A-N. Um, and I can tell you, Mark Rylance, if you give me a second, uh, is... All the time you need. Yeah, I know, right? Cut this out. It's our podcast. Um, let's see. He is... About sixty years old. He's sixty. So I mean, the first yeah. time I had ever seen him before was Bridge of Spies, and that came out in what 2014, 2015? something so, like that. So he yeah, didn't, he didn't, but, yeah. That's and, the first time I remember seeing him. And 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 as you know, uh, me and you, we're we're movie fans. We've we've seen we see a lot of stuff. So for him to have, if he w- if he had a robust film career before then, he really somehow escaped my notice. So he comes to my notice. Five years ago, let's say, and uh, you know when he's 50, yeah. when he's fifty five. It was it was five years ago. Yep. Yeah, and when he's fifty five years old, and it's like this guy is he's got the goods. I want to see more of him. I want him in a lot of stuff, and uh, so so. Well, I it's interesting. He's been in a lot of stuff. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at his IMDb page right now, and he, uh, yeah, he's been in a bunch of stuff. I mean, he he's been acting. Uh, if you give me a sec here, uh, I believe he's like a West End stage actor, a BBC regular. Uh, yeah, I think you might be right. Uh, he's but British. he's been acting for a long time. Uh, probably at least well, long time. He's been in film and TV since 2003, I think. Okay. Ish. Okay. Wait a second. 
I could be wrong. I'm sorry. He's been in since 1985. I think I'm I've, sorry. 1985. I, I, yeah. I think I've heard of the acclaimed BBC show that he was in. I don't know if he was a star of, but he was a standout in. From what I've heard, I think it's called Wolf, Wolf Hall. Hall. Wolf Hall or Wolf Hollow? I don't yeah. know what it's called. I think it's Wolf Hall. Wolf Hall. Okay. Well, yeah. I'll have he was to, also. I'll have to check that out wherever I can find. Yeah, it, he was, I am a big fan. Now, Wolf Hall. Wolf Hall. You could probably check it out, but the history of Wolf, in Wolf Hall is, I think, not very good. Um, so don't take that as as literal history. It's not a documentary. Um, yeah, it's not really. But he was in the other Boleyn Girl. Okay, I, I know uh, of that movie. I haven't seen it. Yeah, he was in a movie called Blitz. He was in a movie. He was in a production of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, which uh, looks like it was filmed anyway. I'm going um, to say from my yeah, Wolf. In my mind, he was the best single character in in Dunkirk. Not yeah, Dunkirk. he was in Dunkirk. Yep, for, and uh, Red, Dun- Ready Player One of all things. Haven't seen it, but that's Spielberg. Yeah. So he, yeah. So he so he's gotten he's gotten a lot more attention lately. So I'm glad about that. So he plays. Uh, yeah. He plays um, William Bill Kunstler. Now I had heard yep. of, I had heard of this character from The Big Lebowski. Uh, and I remember yeah. I looked him up a long time ago. It's funny because listening to this, I remembered a bunch of stuff in the big Lebowski In the big Lebowski, Jeff Bridges character, uh, Jeffrey Lebowski, uh, he claims to have been one of the Chicago seven. At some point he says, right. At some point he says to Maud Lebowski, he's like, uh, you know, the Chicago seven. She's like, mm-hmm. well, that was me and seven and six other guys. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and when he gets arrested, he says he wants, when he gets arrested by the sheriff of Malibu, he says he wants a lawyer. He wants, uh, William Kunstler. So, right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think Jeff Lebowski was supposed to be a takeoff on a- Abby Hoffman in a way, in a little way, yeah. you know, like, a, uh, because if you, or what, you know, basically that era guy, Yes, you know what I mean? So he's uh, because he he was allegedly involved in some. Uh, I think it was the the Port the Huron, Port Huron statement. statement, which which was as we as is talked about in the movie, which was written by one of the Chicago Seven. Uh, the Port Huron right. statement was was authored by um, Tom Hayden. I think it was Tom Hayden. So I mean, yeah. the, the the big Lebowski. I mean, uh, the dude is he's kind of borrowing from a bunch of different people's backstory. He is. Yeah. So, but Bill, the, but Mark Rylance is excellent in this movie. And he's the kind of actor that when you see him in the part, you don't remember that it's him. You think it's the act. You think it's the character. Oh, he, he melts away. Yeah. Yeah. He totally melts away. I thought, um, I thought Eddie Ray, Eddie, what is it? Eddie, Eddie Raymond. Eddie Raymond. Eddie Redmayne. Eddie Redmayne. Yeah. It was interesting to see him play Tom Hayden. Um, you know, because Eddie Redmayne is an English actor yes. um, who's probably best known for playing uh, Newt Salamander, I think his name is, in that in those spinoffs from uh, yeah, he's in the Fantastic uh, Harry Potter Beast. world. He's a star of the Fantastic Beast series. He played yeah. He played uh, Stephen Hawking. He's he's had a right. he's had he's had a career. He hasn't really, uh, you know, he I I believe he's a multiple Oscar nominee. I am dubious on how good of an actor he is. I don't think he's bad, but I, hmm. I, I don't think I don't think that he really stood out in this movie like I think that they wanted him to. 
Uh, he was. Oh, kind of, I'm, I'm not sure. He, I, I felt that he was kind of, uh, kind of a bland character most of the time. But I understand what he was doing. He was, he was portraying the difference in ideal. Like he had to with his acting and, in, 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 you know, Aaron Sorkin's writing, which we'll get to. He had to illustrate the difference in ideology between uh, his group and, and people of his mindset and the Abby Hoffmans. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it, it became it became interesting because it was almost like what they were trying to suggest is that in, in times like times like that, like they were living in when there were multiple, like they did need each other. Like Abby Hoffman had right. Abby Hoffman had a charisma that couldn't be denied, but Tom Hayden yep. had an integrity that was desperately uh, needed. Exactly, exactly, and I think. I think the way he played him was a purposeful choice. I, I think if you see them and you, you see him at the, uh, at the defendant's table, you know, he's never the one who's making a joke or, you know, uh, doing anything crazy. And that comes up at the end yeah. uh, of the movie. But uh, I think he played him that way because that's the way I think Tom Hayden was. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they wanted to, you know, show the, how Tom Hayden was. Uh, I mean, I think, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, and I'm, I, I, I never say, I've never said these words about him before. (laughs) So this, this is, this is going to be a first. He was good in this. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he, he was really good. He played Abby Hoffman and he was excellent. Um, Interestingly much... enough, I read he he has been attached to the Abby Hoffman character since this script has been in development. Years ago, okay. years ago when Spielberg was going to do it, Sasha, Sasha Baron Cohen was still going to play him. I assume it's because of his resemblance to um, to him, and, and it's strange because he's playing Abby Hoffman, who at the time was thirty three, and he's fifty. Right. Um, yeah. Not 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 that that's a big deal, but it just goes to show you. I mean. There's some there's some projects out there that that really has been like I know that I think it was Mike Myers was attached to play Freddie Mercury for a long, really yeah for a long time they was they were trying to make a movie about Freddie Mercury and and Mike My I believe it was Mike Myers I could be wrong but I think Mike Myers was he like really wanted to get into it and he had his Freddie Mercury down and he was going to do it and it just you know, time just kept going on. They didn't make the movie, and eventually he aged out of it. Um, so, wow. Uh, I I, I, never I will say that. That, you know what I when when we're done because I don't have a, I don't have my computer with me or uh, I've got my cell phone across the room. I'm focusing on you, Father Chip, so I'm not going to look that up. Um, yep. But I'm sure I'm sure once our podcast is done, I go look it up. I'll find out. It's somebody else. I'll make a note. I'll correct myself in the next podcast. Uh, okay. I thought I thought a real strong standout was a really good up and coming actor, uh, pretty much a character actor. But I think he's excellent in everything I've seen him in. Jeremy Strong, who played, yeah, who played Jerry Rubin. He's from Boston. It, well, you know what's interesting? Um, this is something that I'm glad you brought up the Boston connection because Abby Hoffman was from Worcester. Yes, and. Uh, D- Dave David Dellinger from Wakefield, our neck of the from Wakefield, yeah, yeah, right next to where I grew up, right, yeah, in Reading. So 
it was interesting to see those those connections to the Boston area in in those people. I didn't realize that Abby Hoffman w- was from Worcester. Be- and the reason why I even looked it up was because there was a point in the movie where Sasha Baron Cohen sounded yeah. like he had a, a Boston accent. He really laid it on and thick in one of those stand-up la- comedy nightclub scenes. When he, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, is he from Boston? Yeah. And so I, I looked it up, and sure enough, Abby Hoffman was from Boston. Well, from, from Worcester. Worcester. And <laughs> and I said to myself, that's interesting, because the actor, John Carroll, was it John Carroll Lynch? John Carroll Lynch, yeah. Who, who played Dellinger, he uh, was from Wakefield, but the, the actor didn't put on any kind of a Boston accent yeah, at no all, which is always, I think, the better choice. Um, but it was interesting that, that's what caught my ear but let's take, in his performance. Let's take a second. I, I know I brought up Jeremy Strong a second ago. And we'll get back to him. But let's take a second to talk about John Carroll Lynch. Uh, sure. John Carroll Lynch is one of these, oh, it's that guy. He's, yeah. He's so distinctive in everything that he's done. I remember him specifically because uh, usually when I've seen him, he, he's a very... He's a he's a very warm character. I find him I find him to give off that vibe. But I saw I remember seeing him in the David Fincher film Zodiac, and he was okay. chill, and he's chilling. So I mean I I really appreciate his like for a character actor, like they have to have range, and he's got range. Like I'm always he's always a welcome addition to any movie or TV show I see him in. Yeah, I think he played Drew Carey's brother on the Drew Carey show. Um way back in the day <laughs> back in the 90s sometime I'm, um, but you know you know what he was in you know what he was in that he was very good in the movie with um the founder about mcdonald's he played oh okay he, he yeah played, yeah he played the oldest mcdonald brother him and right. nick hoffman were the and he was the, he was the real trusting one that ended up getting the that ended up uh kind of really allowing the company to be stolen from them Right. But he's just, I mean, right. I, I, I think, you know, there's some directors that just do a great job of filling out their supporting roles. Uh, and, mm, and that's true. This, now, this is only Sorkin's second turn directing, but uh, like, I feel any, any project that Tom Hanks is in, Tom Hanks has a very, uh, I think in anything he's in, he's got a big say on who they, what the casting is like. And I think that he has his finger on the pulse of some actors that don't get their credit and he brings, he's, you know, this person would be perfect. And, and his movies always seem to be just like very well put together in the supporting cast. And John Carroll Lynch is absolutely one of those guys. I feel like it, when he, right. when he shows up on screen, I take that as a sign of quality. Like these are people who took care, not just of their star, but of the supporting roles. Yeah. And he's not a, He's not usually a star of anything. He's no. usually he usually is the supporting guy, and he does a he does a great job. I mean, he was he was good in this. He was really good in this. And I got to say, the performances were excellent for the most part. I think the performances were excellent um, from the main stars to the supporting roles. Um, I thought they were all very very good performances. Uh, you know, but so the, so. The, so to bring it, you wanted to talk about uh, strong. To, to bring it back to Jeremy Strong, I found it like, I found it to be a, a great performance because he's playing. Now I don't I don't know about Jerry Rubin as much as I know about Abby Hoffman because 
Jerry Rubin didn't have as high a profile as him. Um, right. But so, so it seems that he's playing a stereotypical hippie of the time. And, yeah. And, and you get lulled into that rhythm with his character and he's very, he's very funny and he's very light. And, um, but then, but then there's scenes and I know a lot of it's in the writing, but in the performance, he brings so much depth, so much emotional depth and intelligence to this character. I was really interested. He made me want to learn more about Jerry Rubens who died, there you from, go. Who, who then I found out doing some research died very tragically. I think in the, uh, I think it was in the early nineties, he had become a stockbroker and, uh, it was just, uh, yeah, did, didn't he get hit by a car or something? Yeah, he got hit by a car. He was, uh, walking, uh, in near the UCLA campus and he was, he was on a trip and he, I, he was, he was investing in some, as a stockbroker, apparently he got involved in a lot of like investing with a heart causes. You know, he got people to oh, invest sure. in, invest in, you know, morally, um, or what he deemed to be morally righteous, uh, financial causes. And he was working, I don't know if it was like a health food deal or something like that. And yeah, he was, he was, he was, uh, hit and killed. I think he was 52. So that's sad. But anyways, so Jeremy, yeah. but Jeremy, oh. but it was Jeremy Strong's performance. Like. Like, for example, like there's, there's a great line in the scene. Like there's a couple, um, scenes that they do like a montage specifically in the courtroom where they're kind of like, they're showing testimony from somebody and then they're doing a flashback to how it happened. Mm, yes. In the very first courtroom scene where they're doing testimony, where they're, uh, they're, uh, cross-examining the, uh, official who was in charge of. Uh, giving or denying permits to these different protest groups, and <laughs> right, which was great. It was everything was like that was a great, yeah. But uh, you know, having uh, Abby Hoff and Jerry Rubin sitting in his office, and they're just like rock music will be played. <laughs> yeah, it's just like oh, I don't know about that. Yeah. And then and then I think they said uh, public fornication. Yeah, public fornication. And he goes, well, really... I, well, he goes, well, I don't know about this. And I think uh, Jerry Rubin's response was, well, what if it was R and B? <laughs> that's right that's oh right. man I, I that 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 knocked me i mean i wasn't expecting to sit down for this movie and be like laughing uh so i i laughed a fair amount a fair amount um yeah no it was funny they had funny moments and that's that's okay yeah you know but then it, it was but those then, guys were odd dudes yeah, but then, but so so one thing we haven't talked about is the Bobby Seal of it all. So Bobby Seal um, was the eighth uh, member of right. the Chicago Seven, and uh, he was the co-founder of the Black Panthers. And he was there. He made a speech. He was in and out of Chicago in four hours. He wasn't there during the riot or after the riot, and they uh, loaded him up. And you know. I had to go online to look if he was bound and gagged like it is portrayed in the movie. Yeah. And not only is that true, but he was bound and gagged for multiple days of the trial before they announced that his trial was a mistrial. Oh, interesting. I did. I, I was, I was floored by that. I mean, I mean, Joseph Gordon Levitt's character's reaction in that moment is absolutely right. Like you did with, this is an American court. 
You know, right? And, and I think it's a moment that they used to try to make Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character more sympathetic, and and show that not everybody who opposes these people is necessarily a bad person. But I think in the grand scheme of morality, the appropriate time for Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, the the um, prosecuting attorney, to voice his opposition to the way the judge was handling the trial was when Bobby Seale was for weeks and weeks and weeks denied his constitutional right to have his lawyer at the trial. Yeah. Uh, I think that that was, that would have been the time to say, you know, because I mean, from a lawyer's point, he's like, you know, you're really hurting my case here, judge. You're really making this guy look like he's being railroaded because he is. Right. And well, that was the that was the main problem with the whole thing with Bobby Seale was he was getting railroaded. There was no doubt about it, and there was no um, there was no you know ambiguity. There was no ambiguity. ambiguity. Yeah, no ambiguity at all. So it, it's interesting. There was an, it was interesting to learn a lot. You know, of course, in a two hour movie, you had to, you have to condense things, but certainly, um, you know, I think that. And I think they did want uh, jo- Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, the prosecutor, to be uh, – I think they wanted him to be a sympathetic figure. And I think he was sympathetic to the co- to, to their case, but as the prosecuting attorney working for the U.S. government – He had his job to he do. Couldn't, he had a job to do. This is what his boss wanted him to do, and so he was doing it. And lawyers are like that. They can separate their personal feelings from the work that they're doing. Um, at least some of them, but the, uh, but you know, a good chunk of them. But I think there are some lawyers, certainly like Bill Kunstler was one of them who just, he was, he was in the cause, man. Well, he he was, was not, you know, he wasn't, uh, just taking a job. He was, uh, I, he was an ACLU lawyer. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, but, but while we're on Bobby Seale, I, I wrote down a quote of his that made me laugh, which again, his story was hard to watch. So there wasn't much laughter, but uh, there's a scene where no. uh, there's a scene where uh, Bill Kunstler is um, cross-examining the the female FBI agent who infiltrated the group, and was asking, right. you know, was was Tom Hayden at the riot? No, was Abby Hoffman at the riot? No, like you know, he keeps right. He asked about his he asked about his clients. She says no, 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 and then he just goes to sit down because he's not Bobby Seale's lawyer. And Bobby Seale, right. who has not been allowed to talk throughout the whole thing, has no legal right. representation, just goes, I wasn't there either. <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> just, like, I'm not getting to ask any questions. You should let you should know I wasn't there either. Um, right. I, I wrote down something about Abby Hoffman. Um, I don't know if I ever talked to you about this, but I, I had done some research a while back. I had heard about this uh, club called the Cacophony Society. Have I told you about this? No. Well, the Cacophony Society, uh, their motto is, you may already be a member. Um, so oh. I, I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs of this group, um, but I, I, I have heard, uh, I think I heard a podcast with one guy who started his own chapter, which you can do. And essentially what the Cacophony Society does is they kind of get together and they do kind of oddball but harmless pranks. Uh, basically the whole purpose of everything that they do is to try to get a smile on the face of everybody who's witness to it. They don't do anything malicious. They don't do anything mean. They do silly stuff. Sometimes they do strange stuff. For example, there's one branch of the cacophony societies uh, that does what's called the salmon run. 
and they uh, they pick charitable five Ks. And uh, they show up at charitable 5Ks dressed as salmon and they run in the opposite direction of all the runners, <laughs> right? So that's like, it's that kind of, and it struck, yeah. it struck me that Abby Hoffman would have been, would have been a, a he seems like a Cacophony Society member, um, you know, <laughs> reading about him, reading about the, the stunt that they pulled with like, oh, we're going to levitate the Pentagon. You know, like, I, I can't, I can't imagine not walking by that. I mean, I understand the tensions at the time. I understand the different senses of humor and the different sensibilities at the time, but I can't imagine right. anybody walking by that and not cracking a smile. Like clearly that is, that is performative. It's comedic, right. um, but it gets a point across. Another funny line <laughs> that I thought was great was, uh, and this is from John Freund's and the other guy I think is Lee, Lee, Wein- Lee Weiner, I think is his name. The the two the the lawyer no 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 that's wine glass oh that's wine glass yeah yeah uh, Weiner and uh, Lee Weiner and John Freund's I believe were the, were right. the two were the two of the seven who really didn't have anything to do right. except for, except for get a couple zingers in there and there's a section of the movie where each uh, witness that the prosecution calls is an undercover law fit law uh, official state trooper, right. policemen, FBI agents that had infiltrated various points of the group and they're testifying. And these people don't know that they had been being friends with, um, right. With officials until they show up on the stand and, and reveal their true identity. Right. And I think, I think, uh, Lee Weiner says to John Freund, is it possible that there was only seven real demonstrators in Chicago and 10,000 cops? Pretending to be demonstrators. <laughs> that was a good line. That was a really good line. That was a good line. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, that was very good. <laughs> now, I, I think we need to talk about Frank Langella as oh, Judge yes. Julius Hoffman. Oh yes. Because what, what is your what is Julie, your what is your general opinion of Frank Langella? When you think of Frank Langella, when you see him show up in a movie, what do you expect from him? I expect. Uh, some sort of elder statesman-like character. Yeah, to this, be honest, this uh, this was a real departure. Yes, I thought so. Um, because thought he so. Was... and and if I'm being honest, if I think Frank Langella, I think of uh, I also think of uh, Dracula. That's right. He was Dracula for a while. He was Dracula for a little while. So, yeah. um, but I think he usually is. He usually plays a character. In, in his older years where he, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's some sort of authority figure or older person who's in, but, you know, wealthy person who's in charge. He, this think, was completely against what he normally does. I think a term you used, whether whether he's playing a protagonist or an antagonist, he's always plays someone who's statesmanly. You hit, yes. The term you use, that's perfect. That's what I expect of him when I say, okay, when I, oh, great, of course he's the judge. It's Frank Langella. Of course he's, he's going to be this statemently judge and he turned right. out to be everything but oh my gosh that judge was the worst judge in the history of judging um did frank langella yeah. get you worked up like in a real oh. way yeah, he got me worked up in absolutely a, like i know i'm watching a, a recreation of something i know this isn't happening in the moment i know this isn't real but you're getting right. me worked up like it's real no yeah i was getting angry i was because he was so stupid like <laughs> or i mean it wasn't even that he was stupid it was like he's either really 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 prejudiced or he's 
like got dementia. Yeah, I think I think it's a little of both. Yeah, I mean, it was it was bizarre, and and honestly, I think at that point, uh, you know, that's maybe the point where the lawyer, the prosecuting attorney, says to his boss, you know, this isn't fair. Yeah. Yeah, this isn't a fair trial. You know, I, I'm not, I have no legal background, but I nor do I. I don't think judges are supposed to interject themselves into opening arguments. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> no, they're not. And uh, he was. I mean, it was funny because I was like, "What is going on here? Why is he? Why is he asking questions? Why is he bugging him in the middle of his opening argument? It doesn't make any sense. Why is he bringing attention and, to people who are in the in the gallery that are yeah. on trial? Why is he yeah, asking? Exactly. Why is he asking for their names to be read into the record when they're not being held in contempt of court? Right. And he and he and he used that contempt stuff like it, he's throwing those contempt oh, I, charges around like it was like it was skittles in and in, in reading about it and i and i know in the closing credits they kind of do some they do the thing where they you know yeah pause the frame and tell you oh this person went on to do this and this person did that yeah yeah um but I, this wasn't in it i did it was in a little extra reading that i believe the cumulative time jail time that would have uh, uh come of all of the uh, different contempt of court charges would have been more than the sentence if they actually served it. <laughs> they would have been punished more for their contempt of court than I believe the, that than the crime because he was just handed out like candy. He was, and uh, it was interesting. Um, the whole thing was was interesting because. I didn't know, I didn't remember, I should say, what the outcome was. And so when they came into the courtroom and they were dressed in their prison garb, I thought, oh boy, they're going to jail. And uh, yeah, I mean, they were sentenced to, to five years. Um, of course, they on, got overturned on appeal, which was good. Um, but yeah, that judge was the worst. And, and and it was interesting. There was a statistic at the end, I think it was, where they said 78% of the Chicago branch of the ABA, that's the, yeah. the lawyer organization, had deemed him un, unqualified. Uh, unqualified as a judge. Yeah. Um, and he was a judge for a long time. Well, I mean. Until he, till he a, died. That's the scary part about, uh, that's the scary part about judges, isn't it? It's kind of like yeah, well, federal federal judges, yes. It's, yes. it's kind of like um, I don't. It's a know, lifetime it's, appointment. Yeah, it's and, and and I don't want to say anything bad about teachers, but the idea of tenure isn't always a good thing, right? Uh, you know, I, I agree with that. Yeah, like knowing that you cannot be removed. I think we're seeing a version of this right now in the state of Massachusetts with the um, the state police and the state police overtime scandal. There has been yeah. There has been very little, to my to my knowledge, to this point, there's been very little direct uh, punishment for what was done in the ranks of the state police. It could be True. that it could be that it could be the union. It could be for a number of things, but there's certain protections and certain people who know. You know, every 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 industry, every branch of the working world has their bad apples. So I'm not blanketing. Right. I'm not blanketing the police with this. But you get some people that know that they're not going to get fired because I've got this, I've got union protection, I've got this protection, I got that protection. 
I just know that nobody's going to dare try to fire me. They're going to take advantage. You I think it's to, human nature. Yeah. And you've got to think that there are some judges specifically when they get older and they get set in their ways. They're just like, well, what are you going to do to me? I'm going to do what right. I want. And, and then, you know, and then, and then the justice system really falls on the appeal, the appeals process, which is what happened in this case. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Which is, yeah. you know, to, I mean, I, I, I don't know if it's too bad. So, so when they, when they are found guilty and, but are, but then are um, found innocent upon appeal, does that mean that they had to take that appeals process while they were in prison? Like, did I don't, I haven't looked if they actually, I don't know. That's a good question. Or if they were out on bail, like they were during the main trial. Yeah, I'm not sure, but it, I think based on them being in the prison uniforms, I, I yeah. assume they went to something. Yeah. Uh, maybe what I don't know. Maybe they were jailed for a bit. Yeah, they could have been. Uh, you know, because they're it, once they're sentenced, I think their bail is is complete. So they probably have to be. Yes. Uh, their yes. their bail would have to con- be continued on appeal, or they would be go to jail. I guess. Yeah. Um, now, probably federal prison, um, actually. But uh, speaking of uh, you know the, the system. In, in, in an interesting part of this movie was the whole uh, Ramsey Clark thing with uh, Michael Keaton now, playing Ramsey Clark. Now, I know this wasn't on your radar. We talked about this last week and you decided to watch it. Did you know? Were you surprised when Michael Keaton showed up? Uh, no, I wasn't because I did. I had looked at some the cast first, lists okay. before I watched it. So, okay. Um, no, I wasn't surprised by that, but I was glad to see he was in it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, he was in it for two scenes. I don't know how many minutes of yeah. screen time he got, but two scenes and totally killed it. Became you walked away from that movie, and although he was so minor, uh, his screen time was one of the things that you, you come away you can't help but think about. He's just he's he's aces. I mean, anything. He, oh, he's good. Yeah. Anything. Yeah, he he's does. a good actor. Yeah. I mean, I know he yeah. went through kind of a slump in the middle of his career with like movies like Jack Frost and so on, but. Uh, yeah, I, I I really appreciate that he's back, and I think we've we've talked about this a couple of times with certain actors who kind of, I think Bruce Willis fell into this trap, and I think uh, there are a number one there are a number of them who do, but actors who kind of hold on to the leading status, like they can't they can't step back, they never take supporting right. roles, they never take juicy supporting roles, they never allow themselves to play a grandpa. You know, when they get older, you know, it's like, no, I'm still a leading man, <laughs> yeah, right. not a grandpa. And I think Michael Keaton is one, is an example of this is how you keep a good career going that people will respect. It's, it's you, you know, you don't have to be the leading man. You can be in two scenes <clears throat> and make the best, of, right. make, make the most of those two scenes you're given in a good project. And people are going to remember you and people are going to love seeing you on the screen. Yeah. And I think... Michael Keaton's in an interesting part of his career where he can still do lead roles yes. and and still do and then do these other kind of side projects as well, um, you know. And he's at a point in his career now too where he can be a villain in one movie and a hero in the next. Um, you know, he's he's become very versatile in that in that way. Yeah. Uh, not in a lot of ways, not very unlike his early career. Uh, it, where he was more a co- comedic actor. Well, he started. Uh, he, he started his entertainment career as a stand-up comedian, right? 
Um, and he was a comedic actor for a long time. I have, I've never, I've never seen any of his standup. I'd be interested in seeing it. Yeah, I haven't either. But um, um, let me, let me, let me, because we're getting, we're getting towards the end of our podcast, Father Chip. So I just wanted to bring up, I, I want to take this, this next few minutes. I want to talk about Aaron Sorkin. Uh, okay. Because Aaron Sorkin is without a doubt, one of the best screenwriters working over the last decades. I don't know how long he's been active. Let's just say 30, it might be 30 to 40 years. He's been active in entertaining us with his words. And, and to the point where Sorkin-esque is a word that fans of film and television understand. If you say Sorkin-esque, okay, I know it's going to be snappy dialogue, dialogue heavy. Um, some of it's going to be a little bit sappy, a little bit I- idealistic. But he's recently branched into directing, and I got to say, there's one thing I see is I think that Sorkin, the director, is a little bit too in love with Sorkin, the writer. Oh, yeah. I agree with that. Um, you know, actually, I, I don't know if you'll agree with this or not, but one of the, it's just the feeling I had was as I was watching the end of the movie, the end courtroom scene, where everybody gets up and cheers and... Uh, and the judges he's banging the gavel the, there will be banging order. the gavel yeah and it all i could think of was a few good men yeah because they kind of did the same pullback scene yeah you yeah. know uh Cruz is in the in the courtroom and they kind of pull back so it's like an overlooking shot yeah and as he walks out and it was very reminiscent of that um for me i don't necessarily know if I like Sorkin, the director. Um, I like Sorkin, the writer, for the most part. I think one of the things you said that is is correct about him is that he can be, he can get really sappy and kind of schmaltzy. Um, and I'm not a huge fan of that of him. Uh, you know, well, I think of I think it, I think sometimes think, it comes off as forced. Right. It does. It does. It definitely does. Um, I think of a few good men. I think of uh, uh, what's some, that, the, the American president. Yeah, uh, some some you know, moments even, of the West Wing. Yeah, some moments of the West Wing. Exactly where it becomes he's overly I- idealistic. Yeah, like he thinks the world should run a certain way, and maybe it should, but it doesn't. Yeah, and so portraying it that way is is kind of I don't know. It's, I don't want dishonest is too strong a term, but I think it's, it, 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 at least it's, it's, you know, he's, he's a dreamer who thinks the world should be a different way. And I'm not sure that the world is ever going to be that way. When he, you know, in the, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say in, in the American president, when he, you know, in that movie, um, I would have loved to have seen what happened in the election between him and Richard Dreyfus because, um, Michael, uh, Douglas's character is the president and, and Richard Dreyfus is his, as his opponent because um, there were, there were just things that, that, the, that the candidate of the president did that I thought if he did that in real life, it wouldn't, it wouldn't fly. Like you, you'd get ridiculed for saying stupid things like that. But in, in Sorkin land, um, you know, it's You're lauded for it. Yeah, you're the hero and you're making a grandstand and you're just, you know, oh, and you're speaking in such grand terms and aren't you the wonderful and, you know, and... 
and the music gets swayed up and you're just like because there's at the end of the american president where he's like um he says my name's blah 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 and i am the president of the united states yeah. and, and 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 it was like and the music is like rah, 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 you know and you're like oh yeah damn it he's the president yeah and it's like <laughs> nobody would talk like that if they didn't actually have no. the music playing as a matter of fact i i believe i've heard said of aaron sorkin that his entire dialogue style is it could be encapsulated in oh i wish i said that it's like right. it's like he runs conversations exactly. it's, like, it's like he runs conversations through his head and then he's driving home and he's like yeah it would have been better if i said that i'm putting that in the script Right, you know, right, every, exactly, every, exactly. Everybody's always firing on the crispest, most per, like everybody's prepared for right. anything that somebody says for them, and they've got their their perfect response. You know that that comes in. It's like it encapsulates everything that they believe in. And again, but but it, he's so good. He's he's so. I mean, I like him for it. I just I going in. I know that there's going to be some eye rolling. And and then another right. thing, and another thing he he uses he uses certain dialogue tropes over again. I really felt him coming. I really felt it coming through when um, it was the scene, and it was a good scene. But it was the scene where uh, Bill Kunstler comes back to the hippie house where all of the defendants are staying during the trial. <laughs> right, and he's got the audio tape of Tom Hayden. And right. he wants to put Tom Hayden. And he's just like, well, here's why we can't put you. You know, and it's this really tense scene, and you know they're cutting back. And the the movie really starts whenever they do this, cutting back to the actual events because it's all seen through the through yeah, the yeah. lens of the trial. When they cut back and you see exactly what they're talking about, dramatized, the movie picks up a pace that really, I mean, it really gets going. But so it's going through all that. Then it comes to so the statement he made on the recording at at the at the rally after his friend had just been. Uh, battered over the head by a police baton. Right. Was he went to the microphone and he was shouting to the crowd, if if blood's uh, if blood's gonna spill, let it spill all over the city. And then it's this very Sorkin moment where Abby Hoffman's the one who realizes you meant to say right. our you meant to say if our blood's gonna be spilled. You didn't say yes, that. And right. he, he kind of goes through like a Abby Hoffman is the one who takes him through kind of a a grammar dialogue. You're, you know, you shouldn't. You're a very talented writer, but you shouldn't do this with your, you know, strange, your, your vague uh, pronouns and your, you know. Yeah, yeah. He gave him a whole grammar lesson, which was interesting because you don't think of Abby Hoffman as that guy. Well, um, I did, but I thought I didn't know, and I still don't know if Abby Hoffman had that much respect for Tom Hayden as they showed in the movie. Um, it's an you know that that would have been interesting to hear if that was true. You know, what did you think? Because he really, he really showed respect for him. Yeah, I, I think, and that's uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. I really, I just, very much like Jeremy Strong as Dave Rubin. He bought, he brought depth to a character that you didn't think was going to be as deep, and he brought intelligence to a character that you didn't mm-hmm. expect to be so intelligent. And right, not to say that, not to say that the counterculture of those days were not well educated. Um, but maybe he was more well educated than I thought. I want to ask you what you thought of uh, Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman's testimony in the trial and actually invoking um, scripture. Huh. Yeah, that was interesting. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't see that coming, uh, and I thought, you know, well, 
I could see why he would do that because he's appeal trying to appeal to the jury. And he's looking at the jury and he's saying, I bet these are religious people. And if I can throw out these quotes, it, they might throw some doubt into their minds. Well, it, it wasn't just quotes. I do, at least in the context of the cross-examination, he used it aptly. I forget which Bible verse he was talking about, but it was, you know, I'm, I, I'm setting, well, you would, you'll, you'll I'm not going to. I don't, I don't, I just I, don't remember exactly the, that whole dialogue section, but yeah, but he was talking. I mean, it, he was talking about context, and he was saying, you know, and basically he said to Joseph Gordon-Levitt, "You can do anything to anything if you take it out of context." He goes, "Right. If you read this Bible verse, it sounds like it sounds like Jesus is telling uh, children to kill their parents until you read the verse after it, and the verse after that, and the verse after that, and you see what he's really talking about. Right. And he's talking right. about, and he's talking about Tom Hayden's recorded statement, and he doesn't. Uh, right. thank, thankfully, on the stand, he doesn't go into his." interpretation of his writing style or his speaking style. But he's saying, you know, yes, he, yes, that's what the tape says. But I also have read, uh, read pages upon pages of, of Tom Hayden espousing nonviolent protest ideology. Right. And I've heard him say, I want to end the war. And he, you know, it's like, you know, you've got, you've got this one piece of one piece of tape. And here's another thing about that in our modern day, it took me a couple days of thinking about it to remember like how impactful that was. Not every nobody had a cell phone. Cell phones weren't invented. It wasn't like everybody was walking right. around with a camera and a recorder in their pocket. These days it's like, oh, of course, there must be 20 people who have crystal clear recordings. Exactly. But no, like the idea that there'd be somebody who got that one recording and wouldn't turn it in until over a hundred days into the trial. I mean that, that yeah, seemed, yeah. that seemed fishy. But I mean, I guess yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, they, well, it depends on the uh, you know what the person with the tape wanted to do with it yeah. too. You know. Yeah. Um, the I thought the woman, the actress that played the the uh, the FBI. Yes. Uh, Daphne undercover o agent Daphne O'Connor, I believe, was her name. Yeah. Not the actress. But she the was good. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and she was really good in that. Yeah, she a made, small role, but very good. Made an impression, absolutely. Oh, oh, and her, uh, yeah, and her in that scene where the crowd goes to the Chicago Police Department, ch chanting "Free, Free Tom Hayden," and they, oh, it was, yeah, yeah, that was a great scene where they round the corner, and the police have yep. the police have formed a line, and they start cocking their, they start ra racking They're their shotguns. Uh, their shotguns, <laughs> like. The only per the only person who isn't greatly affected is Dave Rubens. He's like, yeah, and then this is it. It's just like, Abby Hoffman's like, no, yeah, no, yeah, no, it's not. No, no, <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> that was a good scene. Yeah. Oh, but I mean, the, yeah, the the tone and the tension, and then and then he is good at bringing that ending those moments on touches of humor. I don't know. There's a it's a very noisy scene, but when they finally kind of decide that they're going to get the crowd under control and they're going to redirect them and they're going to diffuse this tension and nobody's going to get hurt. And, um, Abby Hoffman said, I'm going to stay. I'm going to, I'm going to make Tom's bail. You bring everybody back to the park. And he says, to Dave Dellinger, he goes, you know, he goes, Hey, I don't carry any money on me. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> Dave Dellinger's like, yeah, I do. Cause I'm a grown, I'm, I'm a grown man. I'm a, so then, I'm a grown man. So yeah. then it's, so then it's Dave Dellinger who ends up bailing out Tom Hayden. It's Dave Dellinger's money. Cause right. Hoffman doesn't have any money, but it was just funny to me that he was just like, I'm going to stay and pay the, and pay his bail. 
Do you got money for right. bail? <laughs> yeah. Well, it was funny because Dave Dellinger, you know, when you look at the, if you, when you look at John Carroll Lynch as he's portraying him, you, you think to yourself, this guy was some sort of radical? You know, it just doesn't seem possible. Oh, I mean, um, I, I think, I think to most Americans, that is the picture perfect ideal of protest. Like his, 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 you know, control, his mentality. Um, yeah. I mean, he, he was, he was effective while being non-threatening. Now I know that non-threatening isn't always the best way to get things done, but, um, I felt like his style was the most identifiable for someone like me. Uh, yeah, me too. Um, I agree with that. He was, uh, he was, I think for me, he was probably the most sympathetic character, uh, of the seven, uh, followed by Hayden. I thought Hayden was well, I sympathetic. Think the, I think the most sympathetic had to have been Bobby seal, but he wasn't one of the seven, Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but he wasn't, he, he, well, he wasn't. And he left, he left somewhere in the, in the middle, in the of, middle the, of the trial. trial and he wasn't there anymore. And you were like, okay, Bobby seal's gone. So, um, that actor yeah, by, the, but, by the, that actor, by the name, his name is Yaya Abdul Mateen the second. And, um, he was recently in the HBO series The Watchmen. I believe he won an Emmy for oh, okay. uh, for guest actor. He's a he is a. There's a lot of actors in this movie, uh, or were around this movie that are up and coming. Him and Jeremy Strong are they're two. You know they're going to be people that you see on the screen in bigger and bigger roles for a long time. Yeah, my, that guy actually. I, I as I was watching the movie and I. I don't often do this, but as I was watching the movie and I was watching him portray Bobby Seale, I said, this guy could be the next Black Panther. Yeah, yeah. You know, he could, like, literally could take over the role of uh, from, uh, from Chadwick, Chadwick Boseman. Boseman, who died. And uh, he could take that role over and do it, you know, um, in my opinion. Yeah. But I don't know if they'll ever do another if they'll ever do another Black Panther movie. I think if they do a Black Panther, they're going to, they're going to, this sounds very, this sounds very Red Sox managerial, but like they're going to replace him from inside. (laughs) You know, it's it's going to be an, it's going to be an interior promotion, but I mean, that's getting off track. Um, Yeah, I know. But we're, but we're a little bit over an hour. So let's start to wrap it up. What are your general, what are your general thoughts about this movie? And anybody who's listening to us about the chip, what would you say to them? about watching the trial of Chicago seven on Netflix. Uh, I guess you liked it. I think more than I did. I, I thought it was okay. And I thought it's an interesting diversion of time. Um, you know, it's not one of those movies I turned off and said, Oh, that was a waste of two hours, but it wasn't one of those movies where I thought, Oh wow. That was two hours. Like it didn't fly by for me. It didn't, it didn't have the kind of, I don't know, juice or whatever the magic word well, is to right. make it, me feel like it, it, it feels it, like two hours, no more, no less. Yes. But it felt like two hours though. Yeah. You know what I mean? It didn't, fe- didn't there, blow by. There are great two hour movies that feel like they went by in an hour and 20 minutes. Exactly. And this was not one of them. Yeah. And so I, I would say it's an interesting movie. If you want to learn a little bit about the, that time, I, cause I think it's, you know, it's, there's some fairly, historic accurate things that are going on in the movie 
Um, I think it's it's worthy of of that kind of a watch. Um, but I think it's also not something that I would say, oh, you have to see it. You know what I mean? I I did like it. I did like it more than you. But I, yes, clearly, I, I I take I take your I take your I would recommend it to people to watch. Um, yeah, it's not it's not bad movie. It's not it's just not a great movie in my opinion. It isn't bad movie. I think that you know what I think we should come up with a ranking system, and I think that statement should be <laughs> one ranking. It's not bad movie. It's not a bad movie. No, 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 no. It's not bad movie. <laughs> okay. Why are we taking the, the A out of there? Because that's how you said it. I, I thought I said, well, I, that's okay. It's maybe, okay. It's okay. I thought I said it's not a bad movie. Well, I, but think, that, I think I once told you uh, one of my favorite movie podcasts, The Weekly Planet. They're, this is, I don't know if I've told you about their ranking system. No. But they've only got, they've only got two, two rankings that a movie can fall in. It's best movie ever or worst oh. movie ever. Oh wow, that's tough. <laughs> it is tough. So most things fall into be- worst movie ever. Yeah, I was gonna say if if you if I had to follow their system, I would say worst movie ever. <laughs> it, but, it's not the best movie I've ever seen, and I'm, it, and, I, I'm, and that's not taking anything really away no, from this movie. No, I don't take it as uh, that. You know, it's just it was a, it was a a, a decent uh, it was a decent movie. Uh, you would say it, it was a journey a journeyman filmmaking exercise sparkling with some really good performances. Yes. I think that's an excellent way to put it. Actually. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, well done. Oh, I think you, that, you, I think, I think it, it's time to leave on a high note. Well, what would you what would you call it? I would I would say I mean, I think I think that's I think that's right. Um on the second watch there was definitely scenes like really well acted scenes that I noticed Sorkin's lack of directing like there's a scene there's a scene where the judge says to Bobby Seale you've got a lawyer sitting you've got your lawyer sitting right next to you referring to Kunstler right and um, there's a slow Mark, burn Mark Rylance shouts no he doesn't and it's, yeah. this, it's this great moment and, and in a more seasoned director's hands that what he he cuts to like a medium shot where it's just William Kunstler in the frame, and right. I think it kind of in a in a in a more experienced director's hands there would have been like a wider shot that was maybe slightly moving in. Like I want to see the reaction of everybody else in that courtroom, everybody else at that table when Bill Kunstler loses his temper, right? And 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 that is where I kind of saw the seams of like okay. I like this movie, but it could have been better. And, you know, to, to come back to Sorkin, Sorkin has worked with some tremendous directors who are very opinionated themselves and they cut his stuff. Right. And I think that, I think that Aaron Sorkin would be served well the next time he directs to get in touch with one of these directors that he has a good relationship with, like David Fincher, like Danny Boyle and say, Hey, could you tell me where you think if you were doing this, you'd trim, you know, yeah. I, I basically look for an, and he may, he may have done this with somebody on this script. I felt it could have, I felt the script and his directing could have used some outside counsel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So That's I really, a good, so lo- I, way of putting it. I really liked it, but it is not without its 
technical flaws. I I love stories about this time period. Mm-hmm. Um, I love <laughs> and, and, and I, I with all the movies I've seen about this time period, realizing they although they never name him that Abby Hoffman was in Forrest Gump. Right, <laughs> you know, there was the right. the, the scene where uh, the scene where he gets, Forrest gets back from Vietnam and he's at the rally on the reflecting pool. Yes. And right. It's it's Abby Hoffman in a in an American flag t shirt and he calls him up and then somebody cuts the microphone and Forrest Gump's whole speech is gone and it moves Abby Hoffman yeah. to, it moves Abby Hoffman to tears and nobody heard it. Right, right. No, that was it well, an awesome movie. Um, but but I'm just, I think I think I think I, I think a movie like this adds to the richness of a movie like that. I like I like knowing about a time period because it is so well documented in film. That's one of the reasons why I love movies and, and, and movies about real things. I like to be able to, to, to even if it's fiction, like uh, enrich my opinion of a time period that I'm interested in. Yeah. And I think you're getting, you're getting the people that were on the other side of that generation. They didn't quite live through it, but they were maybe – 10 or 15 years old when some of these things happened and they're, they're, you know, they're finally getting a chance to tell these stories about that time. Yes. And, you know, someday you and I might not see it, but your son Jack will probably see it. Well, they'll be telling stories about, you know, 2020 and I think there's 2016. Gonna, I think and, there's going to be a lot of stories. I think there's going to be a lot of movies about 2020. Yeah, I think you're right. They're all going to be and, in the horror uh, section. <laughs> they might be. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, anything else you wanted to say about this movie? No, I'm I'm just really uh, excited about the opportunity to talk about a new movie with you again, Father Chip. It's been so yeah, long. it's been in, been a long time. And uh, well, yeah, no, this was this was great, and uh, I'm glad we got to do this. Uh, you know, and I'm glad. You know, if anybody's listening that wants to see this movie, you should. Absolutely you should. Um and you know, it's it's decent. And I think that's about as best as I can put it. Um I'm gonna say it's good. And there you go. So decent and good. It's, so there you go. That's pretty that's a pretty that's good pretty, that's a pretty good review for this podcast. Yeah, I would say so, because there's been stuff that I really did not like. Uh, at any rate, well, we always uh, thank you for joining us uh, on Never a Dull Movie uh, uh, on the Grexley Network, and uh, we we really appreciate you tuning in. Um, I will say, see you next time. Uh, I'm Father Chip Hines, joined by, uh, as always, Brian Swift. Brian Swift. Who, you, I got. I have to. Swift. I have to be. I have to be more snappy on that. <laughs> you gotta be. You see, you know, part of the problem, everybody, is we're not in the same room. Oh, if, and, we, if we were in the room, I would be. We'd be. You'd be cueing me. Exactly. It's, it's your time. And I can't cue you. It's your time, Swift. <laughs> That's right, Swift. Speak up. Anyway, <laughs> we'll see you next time on Never a Dull Movie. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Never a Dull Movie. Never a Dull Movie has been a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. To learn more about this podcast and the other great podcasts on the Grexley Podcast Network, please check out grexley.com. That's G-R-E-X-L-Y.com. And if you're interested in supporting this podcast, please check out the Patreon page at patreon.com slash grexley. 
When you join our Patreon page, you will receive early and exclusive access to unique content. Thanks for listening to Never a Dull Movie, and we will see you next week.